Welcome. This is the Woodbury Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We're glad that you tuned in, and if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find out all the information at woodburychurch.org. Or we'll see you some Sunday, Sundays at 10 a.m. Looking forward to it. Uh, Let me tell you a weird story. Let me preface it with the the fact that it's a weird story because it's the kind of story that could make you change your opinion about me, or at least, yeah, at least nuance it. And and I want to, I don't want you to do that. So it's a weird story. Uh, When we were younger parents and our, well, our kids were younger, uh, one of our children was having these super weird dreams. Now, kids are weird and they do weird things and they have weird dreams. But it was one of those things where they were telling me what they were seeing and they said they saw some imaginary person and they were talking to this person and I was like, I don't know. This is, something about this seems odd. Now, I'm inexperienced and I don't really know kind of what's going on. Is this like bing bong from inside out or what is this? Is this some sort of normal thing? But it was strange enough that it lodged in my brain as a little parental worry. You probably had that uh, as well. And we're inexperienced parents. And you know, kind of parental guilt can get out of hand and you overreact or over respond. And it's kind of like that. And I didn't know if this was the type of thing that sh- should we get professional help for this? Is this child doing something that we need? to go see a psychiatrist? Is this normal parenting thing? We don't want to medicate something if it doesn't need to be medicated. Um, it's, just, it's just just normal. Now, I've never seen the movie The Exorcist, <laughs> but I was also, and I, this is the weird part, part of me as a parent was like, is this some sort of crazy, weird spiritual activity thing? And I didn't, I didn't know. And that's the weird thing. And I'm a parent and I'm like, I want to do what's right for my child. I want to make the best decision. I want to, you know, I don't want to medicate something that shouldn't be medicated. I don't want to overreact if it should be underreacted to. I don't want to dismiss something if it needs prayer. And I'm, I, and all the other parents my age, I mean, either their kids were little angels and never had any problems or they just didn't know what to do either. We're all in the same boat. And I was trying to figure out how do we figure out advice from someone who has a spiritual perspective, but that's also gonna be wise and thoughtful and insightful, like what do we do? And so in our case, we went, or I went, uh, to one of the elders here at church. I wanted to go to an elder and I wanted to seek some wise advice. And we're very fortunate, one of our elders is actually, uh, or was a a professor of marriage and family uh, psychology, a marriage and family therapist. And I said, hey, this is going on. And, uh, And this elder responded and said, yeah, yeah, that's pretty typical, kids are weirdos and that's just pretty normal. They didn't say that, you know they wouldn't say that. They're a therapist, but they're like, yeah, it's totally normal and it was totally normal and it went away and it was no big deal. It's just this little blip on the radar of being a parent and raising kids, it's just normal stuff. But the problem is, and, and we've sought advice from elders over the years for a variety of things, advice, support, encouragement. And we've been here 16 years now, and so many times, and sometimes we've gotten advice and support and encouragement totally unsolicited from the elders. They're like, you need to hear this. this is, and that's good too. It's totally good. Now, I use that to illustrate that, that, that we as a church body, there's these people who play this really interesting, unique role in the life of the church. Uh, these people that that under that have this this depth or this influence or this this authority that is so valuable to the church. And so when I say the word elder, some of you are like, yeah, I've heard that word before. I've heard sermons about it. I know all about it. Some of you are like, I've heard people mention it or I've seen something, uh, you know, or I've just heard guys get up on stage and heard that, but I'm never really clear on what it, what is being talked about. So let me say this. Today is a fast forward kind of Sunday. 
that meaning that if you're kind of new, you're not sure about the church, this is one of those Sundays where you get to cut the small talk, you, you know, and you just get to see behind the curtain and see what church is really all about. Uh, we're going to be talking about elders today. That was a sarcastic uh, woohoo, I think. Now, don't leave because this is so valuable and I actually think it's incredibly fascinating to talk about because it's something that we need to know and it's something that when you have a healthy church, you have a healthy church in large part because you have healthy leaders and when you have an unhealthy church, you have an unhealthy church in large part because of unhealthy leaders. So maybe you've heard the word elder around the church, maybe you've seen it on the website, maybe you've seen it in passing, the elders, kind of what in the world is that? Now the Bible uses the word elder, pastor, overseer, shepherd. And it's all those things. And it's a difficult position to describe because it's trying to nuance something about what that, that role is, what that person is. And we'll get that, uh, to that in a little bit. In a spiritual community, these are the individuals that are identified from within the congregation to serve as a spiritual authority, the stability in a, in a spiritual or moral crisis in your life, or wisdom for trying to figure out what, what is next, spiritual wisdom, or, or people who lovingly, graciously confront us when our lives are going sideways. I've had that happen as well. And, and who guide our, our church, our congregation, this family through hard and controversial decisions. That's what an elder is. Now, some of you are thinking, wait a second, Patrick, I thought you were the head honcho. You're the guy that gets up on stage. I thought you were the big boss. I thought you made all the decisions. Yeah, you got, I, I, it's kind of what I thought would happen. You were like, no, we don't want that. That's for sure. I saw that in your face. Like, I'm glad that's not the case. And that's true. I need leadership and guidance and support. I need that as well. We, n- n- that wouldn't be healthy for a church. And there are churches that operate that way, and sometimes it works. But uh, oftentimes it goes sideways because if there's a problem in that one person's life, then that problem amplifies itself among the church. So the model we use is an elder-led church. I have, I have a picture of our elders on the screen here. Uh, these are uh, the men and their wives who serve in this position. So I don't know, I don't think there's any alphabetical order to this. I was trying to figure out why do we put it in that order. I don't know. Maybe youngest to oldest. I don't know. I have no idea what it was. Uh, and some of you are like, why are some of them black and white and some of them color? Well, we took those pictures so long ago, we didn't have color technology. And so... Uh, no, those are just the pictures that need to be, uh, need to be updated. But these are the gentlemen uh, who serve in this position and their wives who also function in this highly influential position. I know my wife will often go to the wives of the elders to try to seek uh, support and advice and thoughtfulness about things going on in her own life. And it's just, it's just this incredibly important thing. So why, why elders? And why are we talking about this? Why elders? Why elders? Well, the problem, the problem is, well, I'm going to say this is a problem and it's not, but bear with me. Jesus arrives on the earth and you're like, oh, Patrick, we're going way back. (laughs) That's too far back. But hang with me. Jesus arrives on the earth. He shows uh, the, the, the people that are, that are around him, following him, listening to him. He shows them this new way to live, that, that, this beautiful brand new way of being a human. And it resonates with them. And, 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 and he draws crowds. And at first, the people who are sticking closest to him are these hand-picked 12. That's the first group of people that just surround him. And they're with him everywhere. And they're constantly together. And he's pouring into them. And he's teaching them this new way of life. He's teaching them his words and the things that he wants them to take out beyond just this 12. And by the time you get to the book of Acts chapter 1 verse 15, that Jesus has, has ascended, but there's about 120 people 
that are part of this little spiritual community that Jesus has formed. It's a small community. There's fewer people at the, the original gathering of Christians than there are in the room right now. I mean, it's just this small little group of people, 120. They found a place uh, uh, that all of them could fit. But in less than 24 hours from this moment when they were gathering and they were praying, this community went from 120 to 3,000 in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Boom, overnight, 3,000. And I'm telling you, that is no joke. If you've ever planned a party and you were expecting like eight 10-year-olds to show up and 20 10-year-olds to show up, you went into a panic. Imagine if you're thinking you have 120 people and you're going to gather together and have a prayer service and 3,000 people show up. That is unbelievable. If that were to happen to us, I, I was going back to our averages over the last uh, month or so. And we've been averaging about 220 people in the room, 220 people all together, you know, the kids and everything. It feels empty now that they're gone, but 220 people in the room. If we had 3000 people show up next Sunday, the logistic problems alone would be unbelievable. We plan, we account for about 275. So if every single one of you was like, I want to make Patrick's life miserable, I want to ruin kids' classes, then all you have to do is invite your friends next Sunday. That would double the size of the crowd, and we'd be like, what do we do? Where do we park? How many of you noticed one of our elders parked on the grass this morning as you were coming in? And, and I think he did that because he knew that his family was going to be driving five vehicles, and he was like trying to be thoughtful and accountable, but... Uh, imagine we wouldn't have parking. We wouldn't know where to put people. They would be lining the hallways. They would be standing room only in here. We wouldn't have enough communion for everybody. We would be sending people to Jerry's to give us all the grape juice that you have in a tri-state area. We don't know what to do. People, we'd have people outside sitting on top of their cars and maybe I would preach a sermon and, and I would say a few words and somebody would run outside and try to broadcast it or Daryl would be going crazy in the back trying to set up a PA system. If we went from 120 people to 3,000 people, it would be uh, this incredible logistic uh, difficulty. A wonderful problem, but it would be amazing. It would be an amazing transformation from what this dynamic was to what that is. And then just a few weeks later, you go from 3,000, Acts chapter 4, verse 4, to over 15,000 people. And they're all in Jerusalem, and they're all trying to gather every day. And you still just have this, these 12 guys who had heard from Jesus, who had been spoken to by Jesus, who had been taught by Jesus, trying to, trying to make it happen, trying to help people disciple them and form them and teach them. And it's just unbelievable how much this grows. And then by the time you get to Acts chapter 6, verse 1, Luke just stops counting. He just says, I, I don't know. I, it just got too big. And he just says it keeps growing. And this crowd of people who resonate with the message of Jesus just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So imagine you're part of this, you're riding this wave, and, and it wasn't just a church service, it wasn't just Sunday, it was every day they were gathering together, they were praying together, they were eating together. We know that when there are more people, there are more, you didn't even have to prompt you, you know when there are more people, there are more problems, and that's exactly what happens in this, this young church full of people, problems start to creep up. 
But then it just gets crazy because right now everybody's just looking to these 12 guys, these 12 apostles for leadership. They were handpicked by Jesus. And this is where it gets really complex because this one guy, a guy named Philip, called Philip the Evangelist, he decides to leave Jerusalem. There's some persecution. And he goes up to Samaria and he starts teaching and people start believing. And all of a sudden the apostles are like, oh no. It's gotten beyond Jerusalem. What are we going to do now? There's hundreds of people in Samaria who are starting to believe. And he also teaches this Ethiopian eunuch who's on his way back to Ethiopia. And now the message is spreading over there. And pretty soon it spreads to to Syria and Damascus. And it just starts, it goes global. And then Peter is told to preach to a Roman soldier. And then Paul and Silas go on this world tour. And pretty soon you have these spiritual communities all over the known world. Now what do we do? How do we help people hear what Jesus taught? don't have the scriptures written down like we do. How do we, how do we lead? How do we manage? How do we deal with the problems that are raised by people coming to Jesus? It's a real, it's a real crisis. More people, more problems, things go sideways and things go sideways fast. And then you get this line toward the end of Paul's missionary trip where he says what he's doing. In Acts chapter 14, verse 23, it says, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and these are the churches all over the globe, and he says, with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. The apostles who had walked with Jesus, who had been taught by Jesus, who had been formed by Jesus, decide that the way to manage this unbelievable growth of the church was to find people who were, who were deeply spiritual and Christ-like and thoughtful and give them positions of servant leadership in the individual communities. And that's, that's what happens. Now, this is kind of fascinating because Paul, who's on his way to do this, to say, I'm going to meet with some people. I'm going to, I'm going to invite them to these positions. I'm going to encourage them. Paul actually gets arrested before he can complete the job. And so what he does is he writes letters to two of his protégés and says, hey, I want, to, uh, I want you guys to find these individuals, these leaders within churches, within spiritual communities, and I want you uh, to, to appoint them. And then he writes these lists of exactly what he wants. Now, we, uh, we're not going to read these lists today because here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to, to read through them, think about them, meditate on them. And what we've done, we actually have a handout in the back. As you leave, you can grab that and take that with you uh, that include these, these verses that describe what these individuals are like. Uh, the QR code in the seat back in front of you also has it if you want to get a PDF version. Uh, but we want you to have this resource of what Paul wrote his two protégés for what they were supposed to be looking for in these leaders. Now, some of you are still like, okay, but why this way? Why this way of doing it? Why not something else? I mean, if you've, if you've been around the church world for any length of time, you've seen some or heard about some wild church conflict. It's just some thing that just went sideways real fast. Uh, we have this language that we use called church splits, and uh, I can think of many examples, and some of you have been through painful seasons of, a, of, of church life where some issue surfaced, and it just divided the church where people feel, felt like they couldn't worship together and they couldn't be together and eventually left and formed a different church. I mean, things like that have happened. You, some of you are aware of that, have seen it, or, or it's in uh, your history. You've been through something like that, and it's just incredibly painful. 
And there's so many examples, and I wanted to try to share a few that I thought were safe examples, but these churches can split for the craziest reasons. Uh, one church split twice, and the first time it split is because they upgraded from blackboards to whiteboards. Now you're like, oh, that's why, why is that? That wouldn't matter. That's silly. But there were people in the room whose grandfather had paid for and purchased those blackboards and installed them in the room and they, they represented his hard work and his family and his dedication to the church and you're just going and changing it. In fact, what happens with silly, silly things like that is it's elevated to this, this spiritual matter. If it was good enough for my grandpa, well, it's good enough for me and if you're gonna go changing things around here, well, I don't even wanna be part of this church. That's a slippery slope. Who knows what's next? And that's how these things begin to get started. This church split over blackboards uh, and whiteboards, and then it split again because of their new preacher who had been part of the split. The new preacher went to an Elton John concert. And people were like, well, we can't have, we can't have a leader who likes Elton John. I mean, that can't, we just, that. so they fired him and then half the church quit over that. In every one of any of these instances where there's church conflict and eventually rises to the level of church split, here, here, there's three things that happen. Lesser got confused with greater in every single one. The, 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 the minor matters got confused with the weightier matters, how Jesus puts it. Lesser got confused with greater. The main thing was set aside for something that wasn't as important. It was amplified by a failure of character in the church and often within the leadership of the church. They allowed that conflict to elevate to a level that was unhealthy. Pride, selfishness, bitterness take root. And then everyone loses in those conflicts. Everyone, both within and without the church. In fact, there are people who do not have a relationship with Christ to this day because of some church conflict that was so silly and they recognized that it was silly and they're like, if this is what Christians are like, if this is what the church produces, I want no part of it. And everyone loses when there's conflict like that. And often it just comes down to the fact that the leaders of a church let something get out of hand and let something get personal, let's let something get ridiculous. Our culture is already a little cynical towards leadership and specifically church leadership and why it's critical to have exactly the kind of sense of the leader that a church needs, that a healthy church needs. I used to have a job as an electrician's apprentice, among many things. I feel like I've had every job in the world at some point. And this was industrial electrical work. And I don't know, I don't know if this is Something everybody's experienced, but something that I did. If you've ever been part of a, a, like a manual labor crew like that, more often than not, I've found that the guys on that crew are disgusting. <laughs> and what I mean by that is what passes for humor and what, how they interact with each other, it just gets dirty real quick. Now, they knew that I was a little church boy. I was 19 years old, and they're like, what do you do in your free time? Well, I go to church with my girlfriend at the time, you know, Kareen. And they're like, oh, you know. And they knew that, like, the, the worst word that I said was good grief. And so every time something would be like, 
I'd be like, good grief, guys. I don't know what we're going to do here. And they're like rolling their eyes. Okay, Charlie Brown, you know. That was my swear word. Or holy moly. Okay. What are you born in the 40s? Come on. Anyway, after working this job for a while, and, and, and the worst person on this crew was the foreman, the worst person. You could not say a word without him trying to twist it into some dirty joke. You just absolutely couldn't. So you just learned to try not to say anything or just try to, as much as possible, say stuff that just couldn't be, and people get very creative. So anyway, he was the absolute worst just totally unethical, dirty-minded, constant dirty jokes. And I was just like, I, it was just a weird environment uh, for me to be in. And some of you are judging me right now because you're like, yeah, it's you're crude. But I, it, was a tough, it was a tough situation to be in. And I remember this one time, it was just me and the foreman. And we were sitting there. It was a break. There was no other crew there. And there was kind of this, this silence. And he said to me, he knew that I had a lot to do with church, that I was involved in church. And he, this foreman, the worst of the worst, said, you know, I'm a deacon at my church. And I don't know what my face did. But I probably said, holy moly, you know. Good grief. And I, I asked him about it. I tried to ask him without saying, you're like the dirtiest, worst person I know. How did you become a deacon at your church? What happened? Do they not know you? You know? And it was just this, this bizarre interaction. And I don't expect anyone to be perfect. And I hope you don't sit here feeling like condemned, like, well, I've told a dirty joke or two. I'm not, I'm not even talking about that. But I, I had some expectations for what a person, an official person in a position at a church, how they might behave in public, that, that they might conduct themselves ethically and, and above board, and he didn't at all, and that they might interact with people with kindness and, and grace and generosity, and he didn't at all, and I was just like, how did he become uh, a deacon in a church? And I think that it was, they were just at a church where, I don't know, nobody wants to do it, I don't know what we do, they, why don't you do it, you know? Why don't you do it, Darren, that was his name, why don't you do it, Darren? And he's like, I guess, I don't know, what does a deacon do? And, Mows the lawn, I don't know. But he didn't represent the church well, and it's not like I was looking for a place to go, but I certainly wouldn't have gone there. Now, we're not going to go through the lists and the titles and all that. If you've been around Churches of Christ for any length of time, you've heard sermons. That's all on that sheet that we're going to be uh, handing out. But some of you might read those passages of Scripture, and you might say, well, what is this specifically about? What, what are we looking for? How do these lists work? If you read those texts, are they, are they a checklist? Or are they a guideline? Is everything equally valuable? There's multiple lists in Scripture, and you might ask the question of, like, why are they not the same? And, and honestly, the lists don't really cover everything. There's qualities and characteristics we would want in a leader that maybe isn't listed out in Paul's summary. Paul's trying to create, he's trying to sketch out what a person should look like if they were going to be selected and elevated this position of leadership within a church. Uh, and really what we have to think through is we have to think through practical wisdom. We have to apply some practical wisdom of what does it look like to take these ideas and turn them into something that, by which we can identify and, and nominate people who might be, uh, might be leaders in a church. Uh, a quick word on, on words, the words we use. We use elder a lot, or I use elder a lot. On our website it says they're shepherds. 
Uh, the Bible uses the word overseer and, and also uses the word pastor to describe all the same position. And the reason you see so many different words, it's not like those are all different positions, but it's, it's really hard to describe the exact uh, mix that you're looking for. They're almost contradictions. You're looking for someone who is humble, but that can, that can handle authority. And you're looking for someone who is gracious, but that will correct you're looking for someone who's a servant, but who will take leadership. It's so hard to define that specific role. So shepherd is a really good way to describe it. Someone who loves the people and serves the people and sacrifices the people that they're appointed over. So as you dig into these expectations, you're going to find essentially four things. And we're going to go through those real quick. And then we're going to wrap up this morning. You're going to essentially find four things. The first one you're going to find, and this is, if it's a tricycle, this is the big wheel on the tricycle. You're looking for a person of character. You're looking for a person of character. It's like, well, well, duh. Hold on. People get elevated into positions of power that lack character all the time. Because we think, well, they're successful. They, they, they should be in charge. Mm-mm. Well, they command a room. They should be the one telling everybody else what to do. Mm-mm. Character is the most important piece that we're looking for when we think about who, who, do, who has God brought together that we could put in a position of authority in its character. It's the big wheel on the tricycle. And, and really, in all the text, this topic receives all the attention, almost all the attention. We sometimes make the mistake of, if somebody's amassed wealth or they're successful at business, they're the right person for the job. And it's just, it's absolutely not true. Like, for example, one of the things that Paul writes is he says, this person needs to be above reproach. And, and another translation says they need to be unimpeachable, meaning that you can't look at them and say, yeah, they're okay, but I mean, they've got this dark spot on who they are. They're someone who you, you wouldn't look at them and think, oh, they've got some major flaws that we need to. We need to examine above reproach. Uh, for example, if you were to start a rumor about uh, one of our elders, say, say Bruce Goodwin here, right here in the second row. And if you were to come tell anybody in the room like, oh, Bruce, man, can you believe that guy? I heard he went to Vegas and Vegas did not see what was coming. Wow. Vegas had to say what happens with Bruce stays with Bruce. It was so bad. <laughs> It was crazy. Now, some of you are like, well, I don't know, Bruce, but most of you would be like, uh, that doesn't sound right. I, 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 what I know of him, that's not the way he would be. That's above reproach because you couldn't start a bad rumor about Bruce because it would be hard to start a bad rumor about Bruce. I make fun of Steve all the time from the stage, and I do that knowing that Steve is such a good person that when I make fun of him a little bit, first of all, he's not going to get mad at me. But secondly, you guys still know him and love him because of his character. He's above reproach. And that we've selected people who are, who are so, so full of character. Does this mean they're perfect? Absolutely not. It doesn't mean they're perfect. Certainly Steve. But it, does, it just means that, just kidding, I'm just, it's a joke. It's a joke. But the point being that we know these people, and if someone were to start saying, well, this guy, that guy, it wouldn't, you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe it because of who they are. So character is the huge, huge component of what it means to be a shepherd or an elder, overseer, pastor. The second thing is competency. And really, this, the way that Paul describes some of these characteristics is, is this, is this a person who's good at taking care of things? The text sometimes uses the word managing uh, some of you might think, well, that guy's a sweet guy, but man, their life is a mess. Their bills are late. They're falling apart. It's just, 
I mean, would you let them babysit your kids? No way. The kids, not because they're bad character, they're great character, but the kids would be on the five o'clock news because they wouldn't know what was going on. They would lose them and wander down the street. And no, I mean, competency matters. And I, I think you see this when people think that a celebrity would randomly be good at some other thing besides being famous or being an actor. And I don't know why we do this all the time. We're like, oh, that guy played a lovable dad on TV, so he's probably excellent at other things. And you turn out, no, they're, they're, they're totally flawed. They don't know how to hold anything together. They don't know how to manage their life. A guy's a great linebacker in the NFL. That doesn't make him a good CEO. Are they competent? Are they able to manage their house? Are they able to teach is one of the things that Paul talks about. The third thing is care. And you can have competency, um, and you can have character, but you'd be like, that person's house is super well run. I mean, it is like, what is it, Captain Von Trapp from The Music Man. You whistle, and the kids all line up and sing Do, Re, Mi. I mean, they're like, they've got it figured out. But then you can see a person who has character, who has competency, but it's, they care most about those things. I can think of interacting, not here, in another congregation with an elder where I realized that I wasn't a sheep to be shepherded. I was a problem to be solved. And I was interacted with in that way, and it made me feel like I, wasn't, I just wasn't valuable and I wasn't worthwhile and that it would be better for me to go somewhere else because I wasn't cared about. Does this person care about the flock, about the congregation, about the people in the room. Not overbearing, not lording it over, Paul says. Or do they actually truly care? And then finally, do they have the capacity? That's the fourth thing you'll see in these lists. Do they have the capacity? Are they willing to, to take a job like this? It's, it's not an easy job to, to be part of church leadership. Are they willing? Are they eager? Are they able? Do they want to? Um, I want to say a quick word about the willing piece. This is interesting because in some of the lists Paul writes, he says, hey, if a man desires to be an elder, he desires a noble task. And sometimes people think like, well, unless we have to nominate ambitious people. And, and ambition is a good thing, but sometimes I get nervous if someone's too eager. I don't, I, and it's a weird thing to describe if someone's like, yeah, yeah. Put me in the room. I want to be at the table. Give me a little bit of power. And I'm like, eh, I think that might say something about your character. And so I, I, I think sometimes people are like, I can't be a leader because I don't, I don't, I'm not ambitious to, to control. I don't think that's what, what Paul's talking about. I think Paul's talking about people who are like, yeah, if, if, if God calls me to this, if the congregation thinks that this is for me, then, then yes, I'm a, will, I'm a willing person. Now, part of this process is we talk about character and competency and care and capacity, and you know they're true because they all start with C, but part of this issue, part of this topic, and one of the most crucial parts, because a lot of us in here are like, well, I'm never, I'm never going to be in that position. I'm not going to be an elder, overseer, shepherd. That's not who I am. That's not how I want to function. So, so why, why do I need any of this? Peter writes this, and this is so important because this is the piece that we struggle with, and we struggle with it in modern 21st century Western America. We struggle with it because of the, 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 the way that we've been shaped by our, our culture, uh, and it's just so antithetical to the way that God is trying to shape us. But 1 Peter 5.5 5 talks about at the end of describing 
who an elder is says this, likewise, you who are younger. And when he says you're younger, it means you're not elder. And this is not talking about age. It's talking about people who've been appointed over you and versus being under them. And he says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. This is not a phrase, a concept we like, but this is one of, I think, the biggest struggles with church life, with church health, is that people want to, they want to be critical, they want to assess, they want to judge um, a leader, but they don't want to be in submission to. They don't want to yield to. And even saying that, I can sense people's bristling at that. I don't want to be in submission. What if I disagree with them? What if you do? Maybe it would be good for you as a human to yield to something with which you disagree for the sake of your own character and your own development. Maybe it would be good for you to not always be in charge and to not always feel like you call the shots. And Peter goes on to write, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. That's everybody. And he says, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. It doesn't make your life better. And this is the transition that's hard. But essentially what we're doing is we are calling our leaders, and really leaders at any level in church life, we're calling them to embody the gospel. We're calling them to live the gospel, to willingly sacrifice of themselves for the benefit of another. And then we as a congregation, we submit to that. We hold them accountable to that, and we submit to that. We submit to leadership. We submit to someone else being in our lives who has the ability to come alongside us and encourage us and challenge us and, and, and lift us up and pull us along. We submit to that. And, and if, you're not, if you're not in a relationship with someone like that, then I, I would argue that maybe you can't be fully developed the way that God is hoping to develop you, that you don't have anybody over you, anybody helping you, anybody watching out for you, anybody that you yield to. We're in a period of our church life where things are going well. Um, it's, it's fun as a, as a person who works for the church. We get together with staff every week, and part of the process is we talk about things that are, that are going well and things that are not going well, and there's just so much in our church body, our church community right now that's going well. Are there challenges? Absolutely, for sure. There are absolutely things that are difficult and that, that need addressing and dealing with, but things are going uh, so well. And we have been through, as a church, we've been through some major difficulties. We've been through some hard things. I, I was at a conference not too long ago with some other church leaders, and we were sitting at a table with a, a couple other guys, and they were like, hey, Patrick, how's things going at your church? And, you know, it's such a broad question. And I was like, wow, good. And and, you know, this is going well, that's going well. I wasn't trying to do that like, hey, look at us, we're awesome thing. I was just trying to like, yeah, things, things are great. And oh, how things are going to your church? And both these guys were like, it's a disaster. And this is right out of COVID. And COVID, yeah, the, the responses people had, uh, and I shouldn't say COVID, it was, it was everything. It was our cultural turmoil. It was politics. It just ripped these churches apart, just destroyed them. And we have been through some hard things, and it's been difficult. But I think that through an intense amount of prayer and an 
an intense amount of sacrifice, an intense amount of submission. We've been able to hold together something healthy and beautiful, and I think God is blessing that. I think we're seeing that, and it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. So what we are doing right now is we are, we are at the beginning of a process of identifying and appointing new elders. And what we're asking from the congregation is for people to just deeply, prayerfully meditate on what, what the scriptures asks of these, these leaders. And then we're going to ask you to nominate someone that you think might be a good fit for that. That might be good in that role. And there's a whole process. Uh, Phil, who's running our elder selection committee, is going to work together with some other individuals in church and, and work through those names. And, and there's going to be people who kind of bubble up from, from many different sources. But, uh, and eventually those people are going to be talked to and interviewed by our current elders. And at some point this fall, we're going to offer some some names for you to consider to say, yeah, we think that person would be a healthy person to be in a position of, of servant leadership here at church. And then we're even going to give you a chance, if you know something about them, we're going to give you a period of time to offer feedback. Like, I don't know, there's this thing. I'm tr we're even going to give you that time. And so you imagine the amount of scrutiny that a person will receive going through this process. And then finally in December, we're going to announce, hey, we're going to invite and, and dedicate new leaders for this church. And I think God blesses that process. We see it all the way through the book of Acts where, where that was the goal of, of creating healthy churches is to identify these people. And I think God's gonna bless that as well. So essentially, this is the question I wanna leave you with and we're gonna invite our praise team back up on stage if they would uh, come on up. But essentially the question I wanna leave you with is you think about this process, I realize that some of a sermon like this is kind of nuts and bolts and you're like, ah, I'd rather hear about grace or love or forgiveness. And I get that, but this is incredibly important to the life of our church and it will be incredibly important to the future of our church to determine the, the types of people that we want to say, this person should be put in a position where they have that sort of, that humble, gracious authority and that they can, they can yield that influence with, with thoughtfulness and kindness. It's incredibly important to the future of, of our church. So one of the things I want you to think about is to think about who is the person that I would go to for, for advice or I would ask if I were in a crisis or I would, I would reach out to if I needed help? Who is a person of character and who is a person of competency and who is a, a person of care and who has the capacity to do that? As you leave this morning, as we dismiss after the song, grab one of those papers or go online. You can find it. Uh, online as well and just prayerfully consider because what we're doing is we're planning for the future of the church stuff that you're going to be like ah, it's not exciting it's not exciting wouldn't it be more exciting to i don't know do a million other things if we want to be a healthy thriving congregation this is the kind of stuff that it's vital that we carefully cautiously thoughtfully do so let's go ahead and stand together we're going to sing a song in closing just about our need all of our need for jesus